Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff. Our tagline is exploring stories of human curiosity. But I think today I'm going to have an, an extra tagline, and that's dismantling the scientist stereotype. And I'm going to do that with my good friend, Dr. Melissa Wright. Hi, thank you, Gina. And we're going to talk about something that I'm super interested in, and that's basically the day in the life of a Mars mission uh, member, or how would you say, JPL mission member? Mars term. rover team member. Tell our listeners just a little bit um, about what you do at Western and what you do for NASA. Sure, I'm an assistant professor at Western. I'm in the geology department and the astronomy and uh, physics and astronomy department. And I've been here for five years now. Um, so I teach in both departments, planetary geology, specifically the geology of Mars is my specialty. Uh, I teach classes on those subjects. I teach introductory classes as well. And I'm also funded in part by NASA to work on the Curiosity rover mission, as well as the upcoming Mars 2020 rover mission. And that uh, mission, as its name suggests, is going to launch in the year 2020. So we are somewhat frantically preparing for that mission right now. How do people actually do that work? And what is the camaraderie like? You had told me that there was a um, sociologist that studied people working on the Mars ro rovers for almost a decade, and she wrote a book about it. That's right. Yeah, Janet Vertesi is her name. Uh, she was a graduate student at Cornell University when I was a graduate student as well. Um, I was in the astronomy department, and she was studying us, the group of scientists who uh, were operating the Spirit and Opportunity rovers at the time. And she was specifically interested in how we communicate with each other in order to operate this spacecraft, but also how we communicate about this robot specifically and how we anthropomorphize the robots in order to make it easier to communicate with each other about what we want the robot to do. Right, and, and the book is called Seeing Like a Robot, I believe. Seeing Like a Rover, I think. Seeing Like a Rover. And, um, and so she actually interviewed you specifically too, or were you just kind of around when she was watching you, like um, observing your, your movements? Yeah, both. She had one-on-one -on -one interviews with lots of the scientists there and spent a lot of time just observing and recording the activities we were doing. What Janet came across in her research in observing us and how we actually talk about the rovers was that more often than referring to it as a she, as this, this vehicle that has some kind of gender and personality that's separate from us. Right, like the SS Minnow, Minnow or something. Right. R more often than referring to it as, as opportunity or she, we refer to the rover as we, mm. as if this rover is our collective avatar, and it's not and the rover's actions aren't independent of the rover, or they're not tied to an individual here on Earth, but the rover is this result of a collective effort right. on Earth. So you actually are part of the team that decides on where Curiosity goes and actually where um, Opportunity went, right? Uh, you were also on that team. Yeah, uh, one rovers. of the many voices on the yeah. telecon line making suggestions for where the rover should go. And I remember being in your office once, and you had a VR headset. And you let <laughs> myself and my young daughter put it on. and we instantly felt like we were being transported to Mars. Yeah, this is something that came online recently on the Curiosity mission. Microsoft is developing an AR headset, augmented reality, which means that you're not, 
the rest of your sensory input isn't totally blocked out. Mm -hmm. You can see through it, but you see a Mars landscape overprinted on what you normally see with your eyes. Mm -hmm. um, so Microsoft had been building these AR headsets, and they partnered with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to create software specifically for the rover team to use so that we could immerse ourselves and essentially see what the rover sees. Mm -hmm. It puts our field of view um, at the same height of, as the rover above the surface. And so when I'm standing up wearing this headset, I see the Mars terrain in 360 degrees around me. And if I walk forward, I walk through the terrain. Mm -hmm. And if there's a, something interesting on the surface that I want to see up close, I have to get on my hands and knees and lean down in, in order to, to zoom in on that surface feature. So it's really like walking around on Mars. So in... Um in Janet's book, and in, in her presentation, I watched a presentation before this, she says that a lot of the researchers would actually move around in their chairs like they were the rover, yeah. or they would um, they would put like po yellow post-it notes on their foreheads because there was something about this yellow box that they would use to direct the rover. Can you tell me more about yellow post-it notes? Do you know anything about that? You know, I, I don't know about the yellow post-it yeah. notes. I came into the mission. Uh, yeah two years after the rovers had already been operating, so mm -hmm. so there were already a lot of traditions that had come and go by the time <laughs> I got involved. The yellow but the, the moving around in the chairs, mm -hmm. Janet wrote a great article where she describes how the scientists did the rover dance. And yes. the rover dance is essentially trying to move our bodies as if we were the rover. Mm -hmm. On Opportunity, in Spirit, which was an identical twin, the dimensions of the rover's arm were very similar to a human arm. Hmm. And there was a shoulder joint and an elbow joint and a wrist joint and even a hand with five fingers. There were five different instruments on the end of the rover's arm. And so it made a lot of sense to do this one-armed rover dance when we wanted to mime the rover reaching out and doing a microscopic image of this rock <laughs> and then reaching over to this other rock and using a different instrument on it. Yeah. Um, there were ways that we could mime that with our own arm that sometimes were more effective than just verbal communication. Right. She did talk about that, how people were would say stuff like, I am the rover. Like, that was a very um, common saying. Um, I, I really like what you said, that there was a shoulder joint and an elbow joint, because she also talked about two separate instances where she interviewed a female scientist um, and like an older female scientist and a younger male scientist. And they both said that they had like surgery or an injury on their arm the same week that the rover they were working on had a similar in injury, and they were like, <laughs> they were like, it's linked, it's linked somehow, and they were like, definitely, <laughs> they're like, we're connected, and you, even though we're all scientists, and that makes, uh, as somebody outside, you're like, that's crazy. Why would they even think that? But she talks about being so immersed in being the rover that yeah. it made sense to them. Yeah, yeah, and I think as these AR technologies and eventually VR technologies right. come online, that's only going to be more so. Right. I wish that Janet. Um, was able to do a comparative study of <laughs> Spirit and Opportunity with the Curiosity rover. Right. Uh, Curiosity is a much larger rover. Right. The previous rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, were about the size of a golf cart. Um, they're about as tall as I am, five and a half feet tall. But Curiosity is much bigger. It's much wider. It's much taller. Um, it's 10 feet tall. Its right. arm is seven feet long. It's much less human dimensions. Mm -hmm. and. The other thing about Curiosity is that it, it's much harder to anthropomorphize. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the top of uh, Spirit and Opportunity, they have a, a long neck, a mast, and then a bar 
with um, the two cameras. And so it really looks like there are two eyes on the top of that rover. Mm -hmm. Curiosity, if you look at its long neck, its mast on the top, there's a big box and a single offset cyclops eye. Right, right. That's where the ChemCam laser is. It's also a, it's a, a laser that shoots uh, little holes in rocks and right. emits a plasma. Yeah. And then there's a telescope that looks at the um, the chemical signatures, the emission spectrum from that plasma, and it can tell us very accurately what the chemical composition of the rock is. But uh, it makes the rover look like it has this one large offset cyclops eye mm -hmm. instead of the two cute eyes of Spirit and Opportunity. I wrote an article after the Spirit mission ended about trying to understand for myself why I felt so emotionally attached to the Spirit rover and why right. it was it was heartbreaking. It wasn't just sad. It wasn't mm -hmm. just an objective loss of science that I was mourning, but I right. felt like like a pet had died. Right. And and as I was remembering some articles I had read in college, there was a great article by Stephen Jay Gould about right. Mickey Mouse. I know him from The Simpsons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> most of our <laughs> yeah. Most of our scientific legends we know from The Simpsons. Yes. But the article was about uh, the evolution of Mickey Mouse. You look at the very first Mickey Mouse cartoons, he's very mouse-like, almost rat-like. Long nose, yeah. beady little eyes. But over the course of the years, um, Mickey Mouse has been getting cuter. Mm -hmm. And the Mickey Mouse that I grew up with in the mid-80s had pretty large eyes and a much flattened, more flattened nose. Mm -hmm. And so Stephen Jay Gould used that as an example of what makes things cute what mm -hmm. makes us find things right, cute. Right. And essentially, cute things are things that resemble human babies. Mm -hmm. And there's an evolutionary reason why we should find things that look like human babies cute and want to protect them. Right. So basically, spirit and opportunity were super cute rovers. Mm -hmm. And you can do some quantitative measurements of their faces, right. meaning their, the size of their head compared to the two pan cam eyes. And they are. On, they're not as cute as Mickey Mouse, but they're in that realm. That's subjective. Yeah. Um, but so we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break, and I'm gonna come back to what you were saying about feeling like you had lost a pet or a loved one um, after a spirit was uh, no more. So we're yeah. gonna come back and talk about that. Okay. Can you think of a robot that you would feel sad if it died? Yes, Disney's Wally and Eva. No. Well, I like Siri, so if that's, I mean, I, I just think of that as a robot. Maybe the Roomba. That one robot that was created that looks exactly like Scarlett Johansson in Japan. The Mars rover that already died, I think, but that would make me sad. Wally. I would definitely cry. If I saw a movie where Wally died, I would cry. That would be traumatic. There's like Sophie who like is slowly gaining sentience and so I think it would be really cruel if they were like, oh, she's getting too smart, we need to kill her. No, you can just build another one. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> would you go to its funeral? What would you wear? If we were talking about Wally, I think green, definitely, because he really liked plants. He really liked that little, little bud. Mm -hmm. I would definitely wear sequins because I think that is fun. Something metallic, like a nice metallic blackish silver dress um probably a suit that's, that's what you wear for funerals but it's a robot funeral so like would you wear like a metallic tie or something yeah. like that you know throw it together yeah, yeah. honor that man just like some nice regular funeral attire if you if someone was having a robot's funeral 
that could be like the first time that ever happened. So I would definitely be there if I was invited. So welcome back. We're actually going to talk about a robot's funeral we put on together, uh, Melissa and I, for the Cassini mission. And um, it was a wonderful time. We wore all black with like those hats with the veils over our faces. Right. Um, what do you remember from that night? I remember that we had a casket, an empty casket. We did, yes. It was a prop from some Halloween store. Right, but in September. In September. Yep. Um, yeah, they were getting ready already. Yeah. And we had we had a bunch of flowers. We had white calla lilies. Yes, we put them down. We put them down on the casket. We had eulogies. Yes, we did. Uh, we had eulogies from ourselves, from Spark Science guest Casey Dreyer. Yes, and we actually have that show on SparkScienceNow.com if anyone wants to listen to it. But um, yeah, <laughs> and we had George Dyson as well. Yes, telling stories of his father Freeman Dyson, who had uh, some early ideas for missions to Saturn. Yes. I kind of bring up this robot's funeral because you were talking about um, this feeling of remorse after a mission is over. Yeah, and even if it is successful, there is still this, this kind of, um, I don't know, sadness, grief. Yeah, there was a period of mourning yeah. afterwards. And, and it wasn't because the rover hadn't finished its job. I, mean, I guess the rover's job of exploring Mars is never actually finished. Right. But, but keep in mind that the Spirit and Opportunity missions, which were launched in 2003, they were the first robot geologists on Mars. They were designed to last 90 days. Right. Spirit's mission ended after seven years. And actually, just last month, Opportunity's mission officially ended after 15 years right. of exploring the surface. Uh, so Spirit was really the, the heart-wrenching loss mm -hmm. in my professional career. And, and I think in uh, Janet's book, she talks about that, this kind of feeling of loss. And because if, if, you, if all the researchers feel that they are the rover, that's right. almost a mortality issue <laughs> that, that they're <laughs> facing. But you do have this, this, this other mission. And, and I, I kind of um, want to go into that. So you're talking about the Mars 2020 mission. So what exactly on that, on that physical uh, rover um, are you working on? Yeah, so I talked about the laser beam. Um, the new rover, the 2020 rover, is going to have that same large cyclops eye that's mm -hmm. going to be the, uh, they're calling it the SuperCam instrument with the laser and other instrumentation incorporated into that. Underneath that are two smaller eyes. Um, on Curiosity, those were called the mass cams. Mm -hmm. And on March 2020, we're calling them mass cam Z. Right. And that's because they're going to be almost exactly like MassCam, except the Z is for zoom. So they're going to be able to zoom in and zoom out. What that means is that we're going to get stereo images from both eyes, which means we can make our images into 3D. And we can do that zoomed in at really high resolution, at things far, far away that the rover isn't going to be able to actually traverse to. Mm -hmm. And we'll be able to make stereo images in these beautiful wide-angle views and 360-degree panoramas as mm -hmm. well. So we want to get back to like how the researchers are talking to each other and making like decisions. And yeah. how, does, how does like everything on the rover work? And I remember reading that it's like a, a flattened hierarchy. Like there's mm -hmm. one PI of who runs the, you know, decides what's going to happen on the mission. But they're, you know, you're working on the camera. Somebody else is working on the construction of the whole like outer body. Maybe somebody else is working on some other instruments. Can you tell me more about that and like how you all talk to each other? Or do you even have to? 
Yeah, that's a great question. There are so Thank many you. people. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many people involved in the mission at this stage for Mars 2020, which is still being assembled. Mm -hmm. There are 400 scientists, more or less, um, involved in the in the development and early planning stages for this mission. And then there's a, an entire separate engineering team mm -hmm. that I, I don't even have a, an estimate of how many people are involved on that side of the development at this stage. Um, what I can tell you is my experience inside the camera team. So we have about 20 of us who are science co-investigators for the camera mission which means we're giving the input into the specific aspects of the, the design that are going to give us the science products that we want to be able to learn what we want to learn about Mars. Mm -hmm. So we communicate that with the engineers who are building the cameras, and they just finished the assembly and initial testing of the cameras. And last week, uh, a few of my students and I went down to San Diego, right. Malin Space Science Systems is where the cameras are being built, and we got to help take calibration images and do a bunch of tests to help us understand how the cameras perform so that we can calibrate our images when the rover's taking pictures on Mars. Yeah, Janet talked about that that kind of um, tension, and not, not a, like animosity tension between engineers and scientists, but scientists really want to get a lot of information, and some engineers just don't want the rover to fall over or get hurt or anything right. like that. So there, there's this tension of like how much science can we do with actually keeping the physical integrity of, of the rover or keep it going as long as we can. Yeah, I think it's the scientist's job to push the engineers <laughs> to their limits. <laughs> and it's the engineer's job to push back against the scientists and preserve the health of the spacecraft. About half of humanity's attempts to land a spacecraft on Mars and make that spacecraft work have failed. And the only country, the only space agency who has successfully landed a spacecraft and had it execute its full mission on the surface of Mars has been the US. Yeah. Um, the European Space Agency with the, uh, um, with the Beagle lander mm -hmm. um, contributed by the UK Space Agency, that has failed. And the former Soviet Union uh, tempted about half a dozen Mars landings, each one of which turned out to be um, what we call in the space agency a hard landing, mm. as opposed to a soft landing where all the spacecraft is intact and it's able to work and execute its full mission. A hard landing is a nice way of saying crash. Okay. There was a series of NASA failures at Mars as well, um, right, right before Spirit and Opportunity. Mm. Okay. Um, so there was the Mars Climate Orbiter and the Mars Polar Lander, both of which failed uh, and 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 slowed down our Mars exploration program um, for a couple of decades. Wow! All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the future Mars missions, and we're going to talk about pop culture. Great. If you were on Mars, what would you see or feel? Probably really lonely and hot. And wouldn't I just die because? There's no oxygen. See rocks probably um, and not feel very good. Expect to feel death almost immediately as one does on a planet that you can't breathe on. Probably just be fascinated to be on another planet, honestly. Probably be dying. It's too hot, dude. Definitely, uh, or is it too cold? There's definitely no water, and that's important for life, so not going to Mars. Kind of like Arizona.
Welcome back to Spark Science. I'm here talking with friend of the show, um, six or seven timer um, on Spark Science, uh, Dr. Melissa Rice, and we're going to talk about future missions to Mars. It's really the first in a series right. of missions. My, I guess, next desire for Mars is to do steps two and step three That's very of the 2020 mission. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so 2020 mission is different because it's the first mission going to Mars that is not going to Mars to do science at Mars and then die at Mars. This is the first mission that's going to Mars to do science at Mars and to prepare to bring pieces of Mars back to Earth. Mm -hmm. The 2020 mission can't do the, can't do the whole thing of bringing samples back from Mars to Earth in one go. So it's the first in a three-step process. So what's going to happen, 2020 is going to drive around, it's going to identify the most interesting rocks on the surface, the rocks that have the best potential for maybe having some evidence of past Mars life, uh, the rocks that can tell us the most about all of Mars's history. And it's going to collect those rocks, put them into sample tubes about this big, uh, drill little rock cores, put them into the tubes, seal them up, and then leave them on the surface. Now, what happens then is up in the air. Ideally, there would be another mission following up uh, five to ten years later that would send a smaller rover, we call it a fetch rover, to go pick up those sample tubes and bring them back to a launch vehicle and launch them. We don't think that step two is enough to get all the way back to Earth, though. Mm -hmm. Probably can't carry enough fuel in that launch vehicle to go to Mars and launch all the way back to Earth. So the concept right now is that step two is launching those rocks into orbit around Mars. Step three is a rendezvous mission that goes from Earth into orbit around Mars, rendezvous with those samples, and then picks them up and brings them back to Earth. Mm -hmm. The whole thing might take 20 to 30 years, and it's only the first part, the collection of those sample tubes that has been funded and that we're building. So, so I'm hoping. I'm <laughs> hoping. And we've spent a lot of work the past three years or so debating about where we should land on Mars to collect these rocks. Has because that been decided yet? It has. Ooh. There was a big this workshop in October. <laughs> yeah, breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> big workshop in October. Yeah. Um, scientists came to debate three landing sites that were on the table. I remember you talking about this, and it was like heated. It was. Yeah. One of the landing sites was Spirit's landing site. And so the this mission. sentiment there. Exactly. Oh. Gusev Crater. Um, not only could the 2020 rover have revisited sites where Spirit had been, finished the next step of Spirit's mission that Spirit never got to accomplish, oh. but the 2020 rover could have also taken pictures of Spirit, you know, maybe a dual rover selfie. Oh, so um, so there, was, there was some emotion involved in there, right, exactly, a possible, possible resurrection of Spirit in a way. Oh, wow, yeah. The other two sites, uh, one was Jezero Crater, which was a crater with a river, a dry riverbed now, but mm -hmm. a river that had in the past been flowing into this crater, filling it up with water. The crater was a lake, and there was a beautiful preserved delta at the spot where the river was entering the lake. And deltas are exciting places to go send a rover to explore and collect rocks that we would want to have back here on Earth because deltas are an excellent way to preserve organic material. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the favorite sites, and another favorite site was called Northeast Sirtis, not far from Jezero Crater, but kind of up in the plains beyond the crater. And 
in that area, there was some of the oldest rocks on the planet, a stratigraphy, so a layered sequence of rocks of different compositions that could record what Mars's history was like about four billion years ago. Oh. The winner was Jezero. Okay. So that's where we're going. You're ex well, that, was that the one you were hoping <laughs> for? You know, I was. <laughs> I I didn't have a horse in this race. I was okay. hoping for um, any of them. Mm -hmm. Actually, okay. I thought we had gotten to a point where we would have a really exciting, but a really different mission at any mm -hmm. of those sites. Um, the site that I had been personally invested in, in that I I was a an advocate and a uh, a presenter about this site was a site called Eberswalde Crater, okay. which was very similar to Jezero in that it was a crater that had a big river flowing into it, mm -hmm. Crater Lake, and another delta there. So the fact that we're going to Jezero now and we're going to explore a delta on Mars um, makes me really excited. And something else I'm really excited about for the mission is that going to Jezero Crater gives us an option after finishing up our exploration at that site, to drive up and out of the crater. Not all the way to the other site, Northeast Sirtis, but part of the way there, so that we can do some of the same kind of exploration of the same kinds of rocks. Um, on the team, we're calling this the mega mission scenario, okay. where we basically get two for one. And that that's going to depend on the rover um, outliving its warranty a bit. But we have a good track record for that for opportunity say, in 15 years. I feel like you're <laughs> used to this extra credit, and now you're expecting it. But you know, we're in a very heady time in Mars exploration right now, where I was I cut my teeth on the rover missions that lasted seven and 15 years. They were supposed to last 90 days. Right. Curiosity's nominal mission two years, and uh, we're now what are we in year seven of that mm -hmm. mission? So we're, we're at a time where we're used to everything working as it should and working much longer than it should. Right. But not long before that, we had these spectacular failures at Mars. Right. And so we always need to remind ourselves that what we call the sniper on the hill is out oh there. That, that these are spacecraft on Mars, that nothing is routine, mm -hmm. nothing is safe, nothing is guaranteed. Right. And if anything goes wrong, then, then we have no way to send a repairman up. But I want to bring back us all back to pop culture now. W was one of those landing sites actually in the movie The Martian? Oh, none of the none of the landing sites that um, our rovers have been to was in the mission, movie The Martian. Technically, that's not true. The very first rover to go to Mars was called Sojourner. Yep. And Sojourner went with a big landing platform called Mars Pathfinder. And Sojourner was more of a remote control car right. than an actual standalone robot, roving robot spacecraft. Mm -hmm. Sojourner was about the size of a microwave. And after. Less human. Less human. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was more, more rover like, and it was kind of a dog. It had a little antenna that looked like a tail. It had, um, an, it had an instrument that was circular uh, that kind of looked like a pig snout. And it would drive up and put that on rocks, and it would look like it would look like kind of like a little pig sniffing rocks. Yeah. That's what I thought when, <laughs> when I saw the first images from it when I was in high school. Um, but so Pathfinder was the lander. Sojourner was the little microwave-sized robot with six wheels that would rove off of the lander and drive around and sniff some rocks, but it never got that, that far because it couldn't do anything on its own. It needed to talk to the mothership Pathfinder. Mm. But in the movie The Martian, um, uh, Mark Watley, the um, 
the, the, main the Matt Damon yeah. character in the you can just say Matt Damon in the Martian. He goes to the Pathfinder site, and the spacecraft is covered with sand that's blown in in the the past fifty years or however long has gone by. Yeah. Um, and he digs it out, and he finds the Pathfinder rover, and he uses that to communicate with the scientists back at NASA on Earth. Completely realistic, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, there are less realistic aspects of the movie The Martian, so yes. I don't take too much beef with the. Yeah. So with I mean, communicating through Pathfinder. What other aspects of media do you like to actually point people to to say like this is accurate Mars versus this is not accurate Mars, but maybe still entertaining? So, oh, do you mean for people who want to learn more about the yeah, missions or? or? Just or just know anything about Mars. Know anything about Mars. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about the movie The Martian, and yes. I think if you want to know what it would be like to be on the surface of Mars, walking around, what the landscapes would be like, I think that movie is the most visually and experientially accurate so of any an representation of Mars I've seen in film. So that's an answer to our, to our question, to our correspondent. So what, if you watch the movie The Martian, that's pretty much what you'll see. Pretty much. I mean, there are, it depends exactly where you are on Mars. If you go to the polar caps, you'll see these spectacular layers of carbon dioxide, ice. Um, if you go to some of the volcanic sites, you'll see these gently sloping, enormous volcanoes on the horizon. Mm. You go to Valles Marineris, you'll see a canyon system that's like the Grand Canyon, but as wide as the entire United States. So mm. there are some places you can go and see really alien, dramatic landscapes. But most of the surface probably looks something like you see in the Martian. You see some eroded rock formations. It looks kind of like the American Southwest uh, with a brownish, reddish-orange filter over everything. Right. One thing they got wrong in the movie The Martian. I remember this. <laughs> that I've probably told you and our Spark Science listeners about before is the colors of the sunset were off. And that really disappointed me because I think the most exciting thing to see on the surface of Mars, period, will be a sunrise and a sunset. Because you've actually seen it. Through the eyes of the rovers. Right, because right, you're the rover. <laughs> because, yeah, and I'm there dancing like the yes. rover does, doing yeah. the robot dance. But what, what a sunset and a sunrise looks like is it's a, a faint blue color. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time, the sky on Mars is kind of a reddish color. So I think those are the times at sunrise and sunset when, you get, when an astronaut is going to be able to get a glimpse of something that feels very Earth-like in the sky. But then as the sky rises, that blue color will fade away, and the sky will return to its normal reddish Mars haze. That is beautiful. I would love to um, see that. And I hope it, for our watchers, we can have like an image of, of what that actually looks like. But I want to thank you for coming to sit down with us in our fifth season. And um, yeah, I just love talking to you. I love being here. Thank, thank you, you, Gina. A big thank you to Dr. Melissa Rice for being on our show yet again and taking the time to talk to us in person. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and created in partnership with KMRE. Spark Science is recorded on location and in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Zarek Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow. 
Thanks for joining us. And if you want to listen to past episodes, visit sparksciencenow.com.